We're continuing a journey through the book of Hebrews, and just to summarize where we've been the last two weeks, this week is just kind of an add-on to where we've been the last two weeks. We've been talking about that phrase, once saved, always saved. It's a phrase that if you've been around in the Christian world, you've heard it before, once saved, always saved. And two weeks ago, Mark, in preaching Hebrews chapter 3, he said, the Christian life is more like once saved, always running. We're always running towards Christ. We can never get comfortable and kick back and hit autopilot and just assume that our faith will persevere to the end. We need to always run towards Christ. We're saved once. We're justified. We are made free. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But in order for us to know that that's true, to feel that that is true, we need to constantly run towards Jesus. And then as we closed out chapter 3 and began into chapter 4 last week, we said that's true, once saved, always running, but it's also once saved, always resting. And so there's this great tension between, the, in the Christian life, we are always running, we are always striving, as verse 11 says, to enter God's rest. There's some kind of action, there's some kind of activity, there's some kind of um, call for us to work hard at following Christ, to run after him, and yet simultaneously we're always resting. Somehow we can rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That as verse 11 says, therefore let us strive. It doesn't mean let us strive to make ourselves holy or pure or righteous. It doesn't say let us strive to make ourselves acceptable to the holy God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't say let us strive to clean ourselves up and make us morally pure and good people who are obedient and disciplined and do all the things that we ought to do. It says let us strive, what? To enter his rest. Jesus did everything on our behalf. He lived the perfect life that we are incapable of living. He died the sacrificial death that we could never die. We could try and die for our own sins and it would never weigh the cost. It would never measure up. And so Jesus has done this for us. And so we can strive to enter his rest. We together as a church family encourage one another as long as it is called today to run into the rest of God and to say it is finished. As Jesus was on the cross, breathing his last breath, he looked out at those who had put him there and he said, it is finished. It is finished. And so if we are in Christ, if we behold Christ as beautiful, if we receive him, we run together as one family into his rest and we can say it is finished. I don't strive for acceptance. I am accepted. Therefore, I strive to believe what's true of me. That's our striving. And then today, I just want to tag, tag onto that, always reading. So once saved, always running, always resting, always reading. I believe we have God's word in our hands. And so as Christians who are always running after Christ and striving to enter his rest, we must always be reading God's word, soaking in his word, taking in his word. Now, God in his divine sovereignty, he speaks to people and and there is a way that Christians throughout the centuries have been able to enter God's rest without having the whole Bible in front of them or being illiterate. Okay, so don't don't hear me saying that the only way to experience God is to read. God in his divine sovereignty and his grace is big enough and powerful enough to draw people into his presence and into his rest who are illiterate. Who, who don't have the Bible translated into their language, who never received his word. But we, in this room, have no excuses to not bathe and soak and read God's word. 
Some people say, I don't like to read, but then they'll spend hours scrolling fantasy websites or social media profiles reading little snippets. And I think we often make excuses for why we don't read God's word, why we aren't constantly reading God's word. And, and my, my call to us this morning is that if we want to run and rest, we have this incredible opportunity to read that we have to take advantage of. The big idea for this morning really is that reading God's word is a primary way to run after Christ and to rest in his finished work. Reading God's word, which we have in our laps or on your phone, is a primary way that we run after Christ and that we rest in his finished work. So that's the big idea this morning, and I want to do two things. I just want to ask two questions. What is God's word? I mean, verse 12 says, for the word of God is living and active. We have to start there. So what is the word of God? Is it, is it somebody who comes up to you in church or on the street and says, I have a word of the Lord from you? Or is it the Old Testament? Is it the New Testament? Does it include the Apocrypha like some other traditions? Does it include books that aren't in the Bible? Does it include um, what a pastor says? How do we know what the word of God is? What is the word of God? As it's written here in verse 12, what is the word of God? We need to know that because he goes on to say, how does the word work? Well, the word of God is living and active, and this is the book that is effective for changing our lives. And so let's ask those two questions, starting with, what is the word of God? This morning, what I want to do is I'm just going to go to the EFCA Statement of Faith. We're part of the Evangelical Free Church of America here at Park Community Church, and so... What that means is we're not very denominationally heavy. We don't, we don't divide over denominations. We don't think that our denomination is the denomination and other denominations don't do things right. The Evangelical Free Church of America is merely a movement of primarily Norwegian and Swedish immigrants who came over to the United States in the, in the 20th century. And they found freedom of worship in the United States because in Norway and Sweden, they were run by state control. There was a the Lutheran state church told them what to do, how to worship. And so they came to America and they said, we can actually believe the scriptures and apply the scriptures as the scriptures say without a governing control. And so these churches formed basically by Bible reading groups. They were small group Bible studies in homes of people saying, we just want to know God's word. We want to open it. We want to read it. We want to do it. So these churches started. And Years later, here we are, part of the Evangelical Free Church of America. We are in an association of autonomous but united churches. And so we unite around just a statement of faith, what we believe. This is what we believe about the Bible. This is a, the second article in our statement of faith. Number one is God. We start with God, what we believe about God. But for the purpose of this morning, let's look at article number two, what we believe about the Word of God. Here's what we believe. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors as the verbally inspired word of God. The Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Amen? Amen. What does that mean? <laughs> um, good questions. Um, I'm not going to be able to cover all of what that means today. Um, I'm not going to dig into the minutiae and the details. I have done that in um, a sermon about a year ago, 
Two years ago, actually, the same weekend, two years ago, I unpacked what we believe about the Bible, and you can see a link for that at the bottom of the bulletin. So check that out. Also on the connection table down in the lobby, there is a sheet that we have printed about what Park Community Church believes about the Bible. Just kind of some of our bullet out, bulleted out points about what we believe about the Bible, what we believe God's Word is. Um, we're not going to get into all the detail and minutia of that today, but I do want to talk a little bit about what is it. Practically, what is this book that we hold? It's a compilation of 66 different books. So there's 27 in the New Testament, and then do the math real quick. Public math is tough. Um, if you take 20, someone else do it. What's in the Old Testament? 39. 39 Old Testament books put together, 27 New Testament books put together. So we have 66 different books put together in one book. 40 authors spanning over 1,500 years on three different continents written in three different languages. That's what this book is. 66 books contributed by 40 authors, three different continents, three different languages over the span of 1,500 years, and there's one unified story. Isn't that incredible? It all points to Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. That's what this book that we hold is. It's historically accurate. And I'm not going to go into detail on this either. If you would like more detail, please email me. There's tons of incredible resources. But as a book of ancient literature, this book is incredibly accurate and hard to refute. In fact, it far outweighs all other ancient literature sources. For example, Plato. When you go to college or even in high school, you hear about Plato, the philosopher, right? Plato, there's seven original manuscripts of Plato's writings. And the earliest time frame that they have Plato's writings from when he actually lived and wrote, there's a 1,300-year time gap between when Plato wrote and taught and when they have his first manuscripts, and they have seven manuscripts of Plato. Homer's Iliad, also, you've maybe read that story. And nobody refutes whether these are true books or whether these people really lived and what they communicated and taught and wrote really existed. Homer's Iliad, there's 643 original copies, and there's a 400-year gap between the first copy that they have and when Homer wrote, or when, uh, when, they, when it was written. A 400-year time gap. In comparison, the New Testament, we have over 5,000 original manuscripts, and there's less than a 100-year time gap from when it was, from the first manuscripts that we have and when Jesus walked and lived. They were all within the first century. And then if you go out to 300 years, there's almost 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. Scholars who actually dig into the historical reliability of the Bible will tell you, even if they don't believe the Bible, they will tell you that the Bible is, is a trustworthy source. Now, if they're intellectually honest, they will tell you this is a, this is a trustworthy source they will say there's some things in here that we don't believe necessarily if they're non-Christian scholars and archaeologists. They'll say there's things in there we don't believe, but you can't argue how it came together. You can't actually refute the, the accuracy, the historical accuracy of Scripture. And so whether or not you believe this is God's word or not is up to you. It's up to God revealing it to us and opening our eyes to see it. But we can't refute the historicity of this book based off of historical data and facts. You just can't do it. 
And so that's what we believe about the Bible. That's what the Bible is, and we believe that it is trustworthy. For one, because we'll get into this later, what the Bible does. This helps us to understand it as trustworthy. But as an ancient source, we can't refute it. We have to consider it. We have to read it. We have to say, this, is, this really happened. These stories really happened. And this book came together in a trustworthy way. Do I trust it or not? And so what the Bible is, that's the facts of what it is. And we believe it's God's story given to God's creation through God's chosen instruments, the human authors. That, that what we hold in our hands is God communicating to us the history of the world. And he's communicating that to us through his, the pinnacle of his creation, mankind. He created Adam and Eve in his image and likeness. And so God is creating two human beings, the pinnacle of creation, through human beings. He is communicating to us, through his chosen instruments, the story of the world. I mean, isn't that deeply embedded within every one of us? Why am I here? What's my purpose? And what comes next? The Bible answers those questions for us. It is God communicating the story of the world. It's him communicating your story to you through authors over 1,500 years coming together, pointing us to the reason why we live and breathe and have our being. These 66 books were compiled in 397 AD at the Council of Carthage. And so this, this is when we, we talk about the canon, the New Testament canon when it came together. They didn't decide at that day what was Scripture and what wasn't Scripture. What they did, there was all this confusion about which books are authoritative, which books aren't authoritative, which ones do we include in the canon. And so churches from all around got together and they had a criteria they had three criteria primarily that they used. Conformity. Do the books have an orthodox Christian teaching about who Jesus is and the story of the Israelites, the story of the Jews, and then God coming to them in the person of Jesus Christ and Jesus opening up the way of salvation to the Gentiles? Is there conformity to orthodox Christian teaching throughout the centuries? And all of the churches agreed on the books that had conformity to what was orthodox Christian belief. Do they have apostolic authority? That was the second criteria that they asked. Are these books in the New Testament written by eyewitnesses or people who spent time with eyewitnesses of Jesus? So Hebrews, we don't actually know the author. This is the only book in the New Testament where the author is just unnamed, unknown. But in 397, and history matters, let's not throw history out, history matters. In 397, all of the churches together said, Whoever, maybe they knew at that time and they didn't insert it because they didn't want to add it in, but they saw the book of Hebrews as authoritative. All of the churches in that time used this book as authoritative from God, saying either it was written by one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus or somebody who knew an eyewitness of Jesus, and so therefore it has apostolic authority. And then the third criteria that they used was Catholicity. And that doesn't mean just the Catholic Church. It means that does it have a wide usage among all churches everywhere. And so these churches agreed on conformity, that it conforms to orthodox teaching about Jesus. But then also they said, do the churches use these books? And so they canonized. They didn't create the Bible. They merely put a stamp of approval on the books. These are the books that we can trust as the Word of God communicated to us through human instruments, human authors, human preachers, and teachers. 
Look at 2 Peter chapter 1 with me on page 1018 in the Pew Bible. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 21. This is what the Apostle Peter says about the Word of God. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and his voice was bore to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He's referring to the Mount of Transfiguration here. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what Scripture says about Scripture. And in Timothy, it says that it is God-breathed, useful and effective for teaching and for rebuke. And so, with a non-believer, somebody who doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in the authority of the Word, we don't use the Bible to try and prove the Bible. Right? I mean, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so some of these historical arguments are helpful. Um, knowing some of the context and the background, and we can resource you with that. That stuff is helpful if you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe in God and doesn't believe God's word. But for us as Christians, how important for us to be reminded that this is the living word of God, that no prophecy was produced by the will of man. Verse 21, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we believe our statement is saying here. It's saying that this is the verbally inspired word of God. It has different authors, different preachers, personalities, and styles wrapped up in it, but it is God communicating to us what he wants us to know about him and for our good, for our salvation, for our life. That's what we believe about the word of God. Back to Hebrews chapter 4. So, verse 12, for the word of God What is it? It's this book, compiled throughout the centuries, trusted, proven. And then also, what is it? Okay, so that's practically what it is, but then he goes on. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. It's supernatural. There's something about this book that other books don't have. This book has a way to change your life. This book has a way to to do miraculous things. Charles Spurgeon, a, a great preacher who lived in years past, said this. I love this quote. He says, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and it will defend itself. The word of God is like a line. You don't have to defend that thing. Let it loose and it'll defend itself. It'll prove itself. It'll take over. We believe that about God's word. And so while there's a time and a place to know the, the details of God's word and the how and some of the stuff that we talked about before, what I want to do now is transition to the second question. How does it work? Based off of verse 12, it's living and active. Like Charles Spurgeon said, it's like a lion. Just, just unleash it and let it do its work. How does the Bible work? 
Think. So last point about what the Bible is, it's supernatural. Second question, how does the Bible work? Let's dig into that and look at it. So we see the supernatural characteristic of it here in verse 12. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So how does the Bible work? It cuts us to the core. It discerns our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. God's word has a supernatural characteristic about it where when you read it, it reveals to you things about yourself, things that you're thinking, things that you're feeling, things that you are questioning that you wouldn't be able to make sense of outside of God's word. It reveals your thoughts. So if you're thinking negative thoughts, this these scriptures will reveal to you those negative thoughts. You'll read the Psalms and you'll say, wow, I'm a complainer like that's that person in the Psalms. But then God takes you on a journey and brings you back to a place of praise. This is a supernatural book which discerns our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. There's something supernatural and powerful about this book that when you get into it, when you start to read it, and the only thing, that video that we showed early on, the only thing that I would push back on is we need to be reading this thing in community as well. We do need to get alone with the Word and spend time with God reading His Word, always reading, yet in the context of community. So you can say, I was reading and God seems to be revealing this about my heart and my intents. Do you see that in me? Do I, do I seem deceptive? Do I seem manipulative? Because as I'm reading God's word, I'm, I'm starting to think that maybe I'm deceptive in this area of my life. Or maybe I'm manipulative and then your trusted friends and brothers and sisters in Christ can say, yeah, you are kind of manipulative. You are kind of deceptive. And then you can say, praise God for revealing the thoughts and the intents of my heart. Repent. Would you help me? I don't want to be deceptive. I don't want to be manipulative. Could we together grow up into Christ who is the head of the church. That's what God's word does. It sharpens us. It makes us more like his son, Jesus, the Christ. It reveals our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. And I love this, verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Our world is lonely. I mean, hop on social media and scroll through your different social media outlets. Why do people post the things that they post? Because they don't want to feel alone. When you post something and you go back and you check to see if anyone liked it, why do you do that? Because you don't want to feel like you're alone. If no one liked anything that you posted, you feel alone. We feel alone in this world, in this life. I mean, sometimes I have all the music that I want on my phone, But sometimes when I drive, I turn on the radio. Do you know why? I have the songs that I like on the radio on my phone. I don't have to go to the radio to hear the songs that I like. There's something about me feeling connected to other people when I turn on the radio. Maybe you listen to talk radio. Maybe you listen to normal radio stations. Maybe you you, you watch the news every night, not even because you care about what's on the news, but because you feel like, what's happening in the world? I want to feel like I'm a part of something. I want to feel connected to the events. Why do you watch the Olympics? Because you love curling? No, because you want to be connected to what's happening. We have this deep internal desire to be connected to people. We have this deep internal desire to be known and to know. 
We, we want to feel known. We want to feel heard. We want to feel cared for. And I would submit to you that many people in our culture, many people in this room, deep down feel lonely. And that, lo- that loneliness has nothing to do with actually being alone. It has everything to do with feeling unknown. Loneliness doesn't come from being alone. There's, we're never alone. You can go anywhere, you can find people. Loneliness comes from feeling unknown. There's something deep in the recesses of our heart that we just, we're nervous to let people into that place, but yet we long to have people in that place. You've probably experienced this in marriage. You're, you, you get married and you're with this person and you're starting to allow this person to get to see things about you that they never saw about you when you were dating because you tried to make yourself look good when you were dating. And then you, when you were engaged, you were trying to make sure you didn't screw it up bad enough to not get to the wedding day. And then you get married and all of a sudden you're waking up next to each other and you look awful. And except for my wife, she looks great, but I look awful. She stayed with me. And as Brittany and I got married, she started to I'm not going to tell you what this is because then you'll also start noticing this and I don't want to be that exposed to you, but I have this telltale sign of when I get annoyed or angry and she calls me out on it all the time. I didn't know this about myself until we got married and she started to know me and say, why are you reacting that way to what I just said? I'm like, I'm nothing, I'm fine. She's like, nope, you're doing that thing. And um, some of you may notice it at some point, but she's getting to know me, right? She... She gets to know the way that I work, the way that I think, the way that I respond, the way that I act. That's a beautiful gift of marriage. But even in marriage, there's a place that you feel unknown. I mean, I don't know. We've only been married for almost 12 years, right? hope I got that right. All right. Amen. Some of you have been married for 60 years. So maybe you get to a point where that spouse knows every single thing about you. But, but I tend to believe in my experienced 11 years of marriage, that there's, there's a soul place in my heart that Brittany can't fill. As much of a God-given gift as she is to me, and as well as she knows me, and, and as well as I feel known by her, that there's a place in my heart and soul that she can't fill, that, that I'm left hungry for more, that, that I'm just, sometimes I still feel like a stranger to her, like, oh, there's just... Wonderful relationship and beautiful marriage. I thank God for you every day, Brittany. But there's something about her that doesn't fulfill me. And there's something about me, I hope, that doesn't fulfill her. I hope I leave her wanting a little bit more because Jesus is the only one who can stand in that place. God's word is the only one that can truly know our deepest thoughts and our heart's intent and our struggles and our fears and our failures and our disappointments. God's word is the only one that can really know who we are and where we are at. God is the only one who can come into that place. And I would submit to you today that the only way to truly feel satisfied and never alone is to let your heart be exposed before the creator of the world. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. All are naked and exposed. There's this incredible story about this professor at Princeton, Emile Calais, not Colby Calais, Emile Calais, no relation. Um, a, a professor at Princeton who he grew up in France and he was an atheist. He grew up um, very much opposed to Christianity and he married a Presbyterian Scottish girl and he forbid her to bring any religion into their home. 
And so for years, she, she listened, and she wasn't very devout to her faith. She grew up in the church, but she was one of those people, and you know these people, they grew up in the church, but they really want nothing to do with the church, and it doesn't make a significant impact in their life. And so, so they get married, and Emil, a band, forbid her to bring any religion into the home. And for years, he was compiling these different quotes because he wanted a book that would that, he, as he said, would help him know himself. And so he went to all the literature that he could think of, and he wrote down quotes. Over the years, he compiled, compiled all these things in a book that he thought would, would speak to him. And in their marriage, they, they had a kid, and so the kid's young, and his wife is starting to think, as she has a kid, someone needs to teach my kid about God. She's starting to think about this religion that she used to care about. And so she was actually walking down the street one day with her baby in a crib and walked by a church, and the pastor there was outside, and she started talking to him, and he gave her a Bible. She smuggled the Bible back into her home, and Emil, her, her husband, this atheist who had banned religion from ever coming home, that same day, providentially, he had compiled his book. He went under a tree and sat underneath a tree and was reading all the quotes. And he said, this is, this doesn't do anything for me. He said all, all that he could remember as he read all the quotes is where he was when he found the quote and that, why he put it into this book. And so he was disillusioned and disappointed and he went back home and he found his wife's smuggled Bible. And she was fearful, thinking that he was going to flip out about this Bible. And he said, can I borrow this? She said, yeah, of course. He said, I've actually never seen one of these before. He carried it into his study and read the entire Gospels and came out and declared to his wife, this book found me out. This book knows me. This book reveals to me what I desire, what I crave, what I long for, what I need. And Emil became a Christian, began teaching at Princeton Theological Seminary. That's what God's word does to us. It cuts us deep. It exposes who we are. But as it cuts, it heals. As it exposes, it covers God's word doesn't work to humiliate us. It works to heal us. Look at verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. Is that one of like, the common fears that you hear about? People having dreams of going to school in their underwear, standing up to preach in their underwear, or kind of that exposure that, oh, I, I don't want to be naked and exposed in front of people. I need to cover up. I mean, it was the first response to sin in the garden. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and all of a sudden they realized that they were naked. They felt ashamed. They felt exposed and so they covered themselves. And now Jesus comes and he covers us with a righteous robe and he says, it's okay that you're exposed before God. I'm here now to, to cover you. I know you. I see you. I care for you. I feel you. I communicate with you. So get in this book. It's the only way to feel surely known and to truly know what God has for us. And as this book exposes us, it doesn't leave us there. Look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is on page 456 in the Pew Bible. As God, God's word exposes us, it covers us. As it cuts us, it heals us. Listen to how the psalmist David writes this in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? Revives the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise of the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than any honey and drippings from a honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The word of God reveals to us who we are and what we need. It cuts and it heals. It exposes and it covers. It draws us in. And so if we want to feel the assurance of our salvation, if we want to feel the nearness of Christ, we always run towards Christ and we rest in him. And one of the primary ways that we do that is by taking advantage of this book that we hold in our hands. For it's not merely a book, it's the living, active word of God, which reveals to us ourselves and our need for a Savior, and who that Savior is, Jesus the Christ. Let's pray.